to Spirited Conversations. I'm your host, Terry Kennedy. Over the years, friends, family, colleagues, and sometimes complete strangers have shared personal stories with me of encounters with departed loved ones or with unknown entities that couldn't be explained away. These stories have always intrigued me, both personally as a person of faith and professionally as a researcher. Through this podcast, I seek to share and honor these experiences. So Chris, I am so excited to talk to you. I have been wanting to have this conversation forever since you shared a little tidbit I grew up in a haunted house. I thought it was perfectly normal. I thought as a child that everyone's house was haunted. That was, we didn't consider it haunted. They were kind of extra people in the family. When I was a small child, I remember if I was cold, I would suddenly have a blanket that I didn't cover me with, somebody else had covered me. My twin and I had playmates that other people couldn't see. My older sister also had a playmate that no one else could see. And it was perfectly normal. As we got older and began to play with other children in our neighborhood, they had the same experiences. The house right up the street was always full of extra kids that didn't belong to anyone and parents ignored them completely but we as children saw them so it I always thought everyone's house was that way we were awful as kids (laughs) because we would be holding conversations Being an identical twin, you know you have that connection. And we didn't have to speak to each other. They actually took us to specialists because we wouldn't speak out loud. I don't even know how to explain it. I still do it with her. All it takes is a look. And I know what she needs to tell me. For instance, she was in a car accident. We were both married. We were in our 40s. And I felt I was with my husband. I wasn't at home. And I I said, we've got to go. We've got to go home right now. And as I walked in the door, the phone was ringing. I remember picking up the phone and she said, I've been in an accident. I said, I know where you are. I'll be right there and hung up the phone and drove to where she was. And that was just normal for us. So it's been kind of a lifelong type of thing. When we were small, we played in the closet with our friends and there was always room in this this little tiny closet for the four of us and they were little girls also and they came and played in our house nobody else saw them (laughs) nobody else could hear them but they were there There was a woman, though, that came, and she was always dressed in a long dress. And if I'd gotten in trouble with my biological mom, then the woman in the long dress was the comforting person. She turned the fan on for us if it got hot at night, because, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, there was no air conditioning. So we had a window fan that would pull air through the house And she would turn the window fan on for us, or she would turn it off if we got too cold. So we just expected that for everybody. Another instance when we were relatively small, I think we were about seven or eight. And my twin and I always slept in the same bed until we were probably 10 years old and then they got bunk bed for us. But when we woke up from a nightmare, we both had had the same dream. It was a house on fire and we were trapped and we couldn't get out. 
and died in the house. Years later, we went to visit my aunt and uncle in Colorado, and she took us to see a friend of hers, and it was the house. And we could walk through the house and tell them where different rooms were and what happened there, and this is the room we died in, and those kinds of things. So it just seemed like that was part of our life. My older sister held a seance one time. She'd gotten married and moved a couple houses away from us and held a seance in the house. And from that point on in her house, there was banging on the walls and things would move overnight. So it was like, it's kind of all in the family. All of us have this. (laughs) And the man actually identified himself as a gentleman that had lived up the street that had recently died. And he was really angry with her for calling him. And he continued to bang on the house until she and her husband moved out. It got so bad when her husband was gone, she couldn't even sleep. Did she ever attempt to release him? Or did she know anything about what to do about it or no? No, she didn't. And she was so frightened because he was threatening her that you had no right. It was not a good situation. She'd held seances before and had never had a real response like this. How old would you have been in relation to your older sister when that happened? There's seven years difference between us. So she was about 22. We're still in our teens. I remember playing outside on the sidewalk and you could look up at our house and see people in the house that you knew weren't there. They weren't dressed appropriately. The woman in the long dress would be standing at the window. There was another man that periodically stood in the window. I had taken a date home. Our house was a duplex, so it was an up and down. When He was downstairs. I ran up to the upper floor to get something. And I come back in and he's standing in the dining room talking to me, facing away. And I said, what are you doing? He said, you were just back here. And I said, no. He said, no, I I saw you back there. No, I wasn't back there. I was upstairs. I was nowhere near there. He said, I saw someone. He did not believe in any kind of... He would total atheist. He didn't believe in ghosts, didn't believe in spirit. That was a weak mind. I think it changed his mind that day. And what's interesting, though, is that your parents couldn't see the people, but he could. I don't think my parents would admit to seeing the people. That's a distinction with a difference. It is because my father's family had ventured into spirituality. He told us about an aunt that would hold seances and ultimately was killed because she was pressed against the ceiling. And then the table fell. And as she fell, she broke her neck. It actually sounds like the opening sequence of a television show, Supernatural, which started in Lawrence, Kansas. Yes, we love that show. (laughs) My brother introduced me to it. But that's what I'm seeing is that woman up on the ceiling. And that was back in the 1800s. My dad was born in 1913. So he would tell these stories about things that had happened. And I think our ability to see came partially from him. He was certainly more in tuned to nature 
and those kinds of things than my mother was. Daddy would always say things like, oh, it doesn't exist. And yet he was also the one that was the most spiritual. So not religious, but spiritual and truly made us understand that there is more to heaven and earth than we could possibly understand. And that people are not very far away from you. When my dad passed away, I remember struggling in nursing school and having him come to talk to me about it. And he would help me through the tests and help me pass them. As I've gotten older and kind of gotten away from some of the spiritual things, I would assure myself that it was just my mind talking to me. My dad understood and he truly was amazing with that. And he was there when I needed him. So I don't know if you've been listening to the podcast or not, but there's a theme that comes through about these protective presences. And you've talked about this woman who took care of you and your sister when you were young and were cold or were hot or needed comforting. And now your father I'm wondering if you can think of any other times that there's been that type of protective presence with either of those entities or anyone else. So the house was built in 1910. And originally, it was more of a boarding house before it became a single family dwellings. A policeman killed himself on the second floor in the back bedroom. That back bedroom was always cool, much cooler than the rest of the house, even being on the top floor. That room, you could sometimes feel more malevolence, but when you were out of the room, it was okay. Doors were closed. And that was the strange thing. If the doors to the back room were closed, then it would become cooler. If you opened the doors, it was almost as if you were letting in light or positive energies because the other people that I felt were in the house were more positive energies. It may be hard to put words to this, but how would you describe malevolence and what that feels like for people who don't have the gift that you have? For me, it was that change in temperature. And just a feeling of discomfort, not pain, but that uneasy feeling that something isn't right and you've got to fix it, or something's not right and you need to get away. That's what I felt when the doors were closed. As long as the doors were open, everything was fine. People talk about the hairs on their arm raising or like a tingle or something. Did you have any of those kinds of feelings that went along with that malevolence feeling? Frequently. You know, though, surprisingly, my mother lived on the bottom floor. And when I graduated from college, I ended up on the top floor. That was my bedroom. And as long as I slept with the doors open, everything was okay. If the doors were closed at night, I didn't sleep well at all. So it was a different kind of room back there. Another time as I was older, I worked in a small very redneck city in a little tiny hospital. This hospital only had 20 beds and I worked night shift. One night, it had to have been close to Christmas. And so the hospital was virtually empty. I think we only had two or three beds full and they were right close to the nursing station. And about three o'clock in the morning, we start hearing this child crying. Well, as the charge nurse for that floor, I was also responsible for the emergency room. And our first thought was, 
somebody got into the building and they're down in the emergency room because this child was sobbing. I ran down to the ED and there's, it's dark. There's nobody down there. And when I came back upstairs, the other nurses I was with had started searching because we had walkie talkies and I'd called back up and said, there's nobody down here. It's got to be on our floor. One of the aides had lost her daughter to leukemia at the age of six in that hospital. And she walked down the hallway to a room and there was a little girl standing there crying. And she said, I could see right through her, but it was my daughter. She said, I love you, mama. And I miss you. And then she was gone. And this poor girl just sobbed for the longest time, not because she was sad, but because her daughter said, I love you. It was the most amazing night. When I was working in oncology, I had a young man that had been unresponsive for greater than 24 hours and he wasn't going to make it. He was dying also with leukemia. His parents were sitting on either side of him. I went in to take his blood pressure. And as always, you know, you touch a patient and you explain to them, even if they're not responsive. And I, I told him, I'm going to pick your arm up and put a blood pressure cuff on. I just need to get your vital signs. And he said, okay, it's the first time in 24 hours he's spoken to anybody. He said, I need to talk to my mom and dad. So I woke him up really quick. And he said, I wanted to tell you, I love you both. It's going to be okay. And I'm going home. And he was gone before morning. It was the most amazing gift. It was truly that gift. And I feel like all of these instances have been those gifts. When we were in the house in Colorado, it was almost a closure to that event. Yes, we died in that house, but it's built again and it's okay. And we're okay. We're both fine and we're here. And so I kind of picture all of that as kind of closures along the way. talking with someone recently and we were talking about the role of the doula and so you've worked in oncology and you're familiar with that role in a way do you feel as if you're a little bit of a spiritual doula sometimes I think being willing to talk about it and recognizing that I I wouldn't say I'm not completely ignorant of life after death, because I feel like I have some insight, although it's very, very limited. I'm willing to say that there are more things than we understand and that we know. I was taking care of a woman that because of her religion, they don't believe in angels. She was actively dying. And her sister, who'd been dead for over 10 years, kept coming into the room and talking to her, excitedly saying, we know that you're coming home soon and we are so excited to see you and we're all waiting for you and mama's there and daddy's there and, and having this conversation with this patient. And she was comforted when the sister was in the room, but when the sister wasn't there, then she was afraid. Maybe it was a demon trying to trick her. And I know going in and talking to her about angels and about people that are waiting for us. We're energy. We don't just dissipate and be gone. It has to go somewhere. And she is there for comfort. The woman certainly calmed down and was able to die peacefully. And it was amazing the warmth in that room when I got there. Because as hospice nurses, we would be called to the family when they needed us. And I remember going to that house that evening and the room was just 
light. It was absolutely amazing. So my mother was in hospice care and we had a wonderful, wonderful nurse. So I want to thank you for your service as a nurse in hospice because it is such a challenging time for families and it becomes such a comfort. Thank you. I truly gained so much more from working in hospice. I'd been an ICU nurse and an ED nurse and you know that drive to we got to fix everything and we got to save people to understanding the spirituality that goes with that. And my patients truly taught me that spirituality and helped me find peace in the things that had happened in my life and help make sense of that. I was wondering You've had experiences with people who have passed over. Have you had any experiences with what you would consider to be an angel? They're all angels in one way or another in my book. They may not be heavenly angels. They may be fallen angels, but they're there to help us. I honestly feel like if ever I reach out, there is someone there to help me. Sometimes it's... God sending someone because I've needed help and it's in the form of a human being. And sometimes it's a wonderful, magical dream of someone that is there to comfort and care for. It's surprising how we encounter spirits and we don't recognize many times in the form of dreams, sometimes in the form of you suddenly feel this nice warmth and you feel surrounded by comfort and it's amazing. I don't think we focus sometimes on feelings so much as doing. Yeah, we're human doers and not always human beings. Yes, (laughs) exactly. That's a very good way to put it. I want to go back to something that you talked about earlier. So in my life, you are now half of the fifth set of twins that I've been affiliated with. So I had three sets of twins who were best friends and I married a twin. My bad joke was always that I've always wanted to go out with twins, but you know, that, <laughs> that was, that was a, a reverse misogyny probably. <laughs> so, but I have always experienced that twins do have superpowers. And my experience of every set of twins that I've had the pleasure to be friends with or in family with has been that unspoken piece. And I just am curious, do you think that that ability in any way makes you more sensitive to, I hate to call it supernatural because I think it is natural. I think it's just that it's beyond our understanding, as you've said, but it also sounds like you've got this hereditary link, but I'm just wondering, do you feel as if there's like an enhancement because of the gifts that you have as twins? I think so. I really do. I think because we started out communicating that way and knowing that we could interact without ever speaking, but it still goes on. And unfortunately, I don't have that relationship with anyone else. I can't do it with my kids. I can't do it with my husband. And that always surprised me. I didn't understand why I couldn't communicate that way. I have a son that is autistic. And of all of the boys, he is probably the one that I can communicate most with in that fashion. Unfortunately, from his side, because of the autism, he doesn't pick up on the nonverbal cues, but I can figure out what he's experiencing even before he comes home.
one of my managers one time said, you have the ability to be so empathetic. He said, you know so much about people's mental status just by sitting with them for a few minutes. And he said, I've never met anybody like you. And it really worries me that you might read me. <laughs> I love that. Well, and then that's the other word that comes up in the conversations I've been having is the people that I speak with who have the experiences, the kind of things that you're sharing tend to be in helping professions. And a lot of people who are nurses or social workers or in education involved working with people and have these empathetic gifts, but also there's always that sweet spot where how do you maintain your empathy, but how do you also preserve and protect your own energy and your own well-being? And I'm wondering what your experience has been with that. You're so open and you absorb things, you notice things, you experience things that other people miss. But my sense is that also leaves us open to the drainage that can happen when there's negativity around us. I have struggled with that protection part, but again, I begin to have those conversations sometimes with God and sometimes in the dreams with people that I am comforted by that help me regroup. I've learned over all my years now how to be more self-protective and certainly what the bad energies are. I saw a shirt recently that said, you look like a headache and drama get away from me. And I thought, oh my gosh, that looks perfect. I need that shirt. So yes, I think because of that sensitivity, we begin to recognize the drama and the bad things. And we can step back from that and stay out of those situations. As younger people, we don't always have that experience to be able to step back. So Age has certainly helped that. I have to tell you one more story. I couldn't have been more than five and my grandpa was dying. Grandpa and grandma lived just a couple houses down and all of my aunts and uncles were there but also all of my cousins. And they wouldn't let the cousins into the house because grandpa was actively dying. We were sitting on the front porch and we saw Jesus come down to our front yard. And it was the pictures of Jesus like we saw in Bible school. And he started to come into the house. And as a group, we surrounded him and wanted to know what he was doing there. And he talked with all of us. And he told us he was coming to take grandpa with him to come and play. And we saw him go into the house and we saw he and grandpa leave the house. And we stood out and waved bye to grandpa and Jesus when they left. Even though grandpa had been a very positive thing in my life as a small child, it was like, oh, grandpa's going to go have fun. And it wasn't frightening. I don't remember feeling bad that grandpa was gone, but he was going to go play with Jesus now. How old would you have been at that time? I think we were about five. And my oldest cousin that happened to be in that circle couldn't have been more than seven. You and your twin and your seven-year-old cousin. other And several of us. There were at least five of us out there. We talked about seeing Jesus come to take grandpa out to play. And of course, the older people are going, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Do you remember when they left? Did they walk away and sort of disappear? No, they floated. They, they did. They came out the front door walking and they got to where we were out in the yard and they started going up like they were going upstairs. Did they just sort of gradually disappear? Yeah. But we knew they'd gone to play. It was okay. You had mentioned earlier that there were other children in the neighborhood who saw 
children who no one else could see in their homes. Were some of these children you were with, were there any of those children who you were referring to earlier? No, it was a separate family that lived okay. up the street. They were like way up the block, you know, as a little kid. Oh my gosh, they're like five houses away. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, But they had a big giant house and it was known as a haunted house. It was a fun place to go play because there were extras. What kind of personalities or entities were there? What ages? They weren't always really nice entities. Some of them were a bit ornery and you had to be careful. You didn't want to make them mad because you might get hit with a rock. So yeah, physical was, contact. At the time you're running, you don't know if that's a real person throwing that or something else, but okay. you knew that there were factions that you had to be nice to, to play well. And so these other children, you could all see these <laughs> entities. Were those children able to see the little girls and the woman in your house then? I never asked them because everybody had them. So of course they could see them. You okay. know, it was just something you took for granted as a child. It was just the normal experience. <laughs> Call any of the other parents of your friend talking about any of these things. Children didn't interact with their parents like mm -hmm. that back in the 50s and 60s. We mm -hmm. were definitely removed. The habit of our parents, especially late spring through the summer and early fall, was that they would sit all the neighbors would come and sit in somebody's yard and they would sit and chat and the kids would run and play. So that definitely not really interactive with our parents. And we, of course, didn't share everything that we did as children. That was the beauty of living then. Nobody had a camera to, to spy on you or put we're on kind of, Facebook. Free range children <laughs> in those days. <laughs> yes, we were and enjoyed so much more. Mm -hmm. and experienced so much more and had so much more imagination, I think, because we did run absolutely free and it was safe. It was a good time. We remark often when we walk through the neighborhood that we never see children out. And we know there are some, but it's mm -hmm. like they're never outside. I mean, we used to just stay out until it got so dark we had to go in because we couldn't see anymore. Our rule was when the streetlights came on, you oh, had okay. to win. Yes. Yeah. But until then, we were all over the place and we would wander miles mm -hmm. sometimes just playing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, kids nowadays are really missing out. So is the house that you grew up in still in the family? The last person to own it was a cousin and it's somehow burned down. So it's now gone. It doesn't exist anymore. As far as you know, did the cousin ever talk about having any experiences when they lived there? They used it as a, a rental. They didn't stay there. I don't recall them ever talking about anything within the house. But those cousins were from my mother's family, and they oh. were very much more grounded in reality, and what you see is what you get. Okay. And it was my father's family that was more spiritually aware. So now you talked about that you could have that communication with your sister, and to some degree with your son who's autistic. Do you see in your children any of the gifts that you had as a child? <laughs> We were tearing up our kitchen. Now, mind you, my boys are pretty much grounded in everything that's real because it's the generation and, you know, they're playing all the time on video games and things. And my son, especially this youngest one, is all about numbers and all about facts. And he is forever just shaking his head when I tell him some of these stories. We were tearing up our kitchen 
remodeling. And we were trying to get the old flooring off. So we're pounding and pounding on this floor. And somebody yells, stop it. And he stood up. He said, what? I said, I didn't say anything. It wasn't me. He went and asked his dad, why are you yelling at us to stop? He said, I'm, I'm watching television. I didn't ask you for anything. I didn't say anything. Nobody else in the house. We started in again and it happened a second time. Stop that. I finally said, we have work to do here. We have got to get this finished and then we'll stop. And no more instructions. But I was kind of used to that. Again, you you just tell them what you're doing. You're communicating and you're not afraid of them. It's just you're having a conversation and you're setting some limits. And it's like, you know, we've got this to do. What intrigues me about that, though, is that when you're doing renovation in a home is sometimes when it'll wake something up that's been lying dormant. So did anything else happen after you did the renovation? Periodically now we hear people walking through the house when you're there all by yourself and there's no one else home. And your family hears that as well? Mm-hmm. All of us can hear the sound of footsteps and we know the house is empty. Are there certain rooms that you notice it in more than others? Not in the formal living room so much. It's in our den. It's actually a library. So all of my books are in there and some recliners. There's no television or anything in that room, but it leads to the rest of the house. So you hear someone go from the kitchen through this room and to the back of the house, and then you don't hear them. It's not like they go into one of the bedrooms. It just ends in that hallway. So do you know anything about who used to live in that house that you're in now? It's a relatively new house. It was built, I believe, in 1975. I don't think it's that old. I believe there was only one death that we knew of there, but it was a natural death. And it was a woman. The steps that we hear are heavy and they sound like a man's step. When we moved here, we were looking at houses and I've described in the podcast before this experience of going into a place and having a feeling about it. And I was just wondering in your life, as you've moved or have been looking for a place, do you find yourself connecting with the place or with spirit that might be there? There was a period of time that I was more closed and I don't feel like I was reading things as well. I feel like the times when my life is most stressful are the times that I'm not feeling any of that. And so moving is a, a stressful process. And that I think I haven't read houses, but I have gone to other people's houses that it's like, oh, this is a good house. Or this house is not so good. There's it, it, something not right about this house. Yeah. It's more when I visit people, not so much when I am going to pick out a house. Oh, but I always God. wanted to live in another haunted house. I always, my twin and I would both talk about if we could just find a haunted house to move into. So you've got footsteps and a couple of voices in the kitchen. Does that feel like a haunted house to you? Or what would elevate it to a haunted house status for you? If I could actually see them, as it is, it's a sound. And the way my mother would always talk about it is it's the house settling. There's always an excuse. Oh, it's the wind blowing. Oh, it's the house settling. Oh, the door is crooked. That's why it opens and shuts all by itself. Did you have things move in the house? And it, like you talked about the fan going on and off and the blanket. And so you Sometimes the fan would actually be lifted out of the window and put on the floor and the window closed. And the door in my parents' bedroom would open and the closet door would open and close all the time. And that closet was an icebox. You would go in there and it was just cold. So I saw, I don't think it was a t-shirt, but it was a sign 
if when one door closes, another door opens, you may be in a haunted house. <laughs> yes, I would love that one. Yes, <laughs> I might be. <laughs> I'll look for that again. And it sounds like the stories and the experiences that you've shared have tended to be with other people and that everybody's experiencing it. I've got to go back to the one with the child crying in the hospital. I've worked in hospitals a lot and I had a coworker who did the public relations for the hospital and she was a real believer in spirit and angels and she actually used to paint angels. And she would talk to me about the entities that she would meet in the hospital. And I wasn't having those experiences at that time, but I was very stressed. So maybe that was why. But the question I had is, it sounded like several people heard this child. Did anyone other than the mother see her? We'd all separated. There were only four of us in the hospital that night. Mm -hmm. So we all went different directions trying to find Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I wasn't at all surprised. How old was her daughter when she died? Six, six. So she was small. And so when she saw her, did it appear to her that it was like her daughter at that age when she died? She was a little girl in a robe. When oh. the nurse saw her, she knew immediately that that was her daughter. So that was her robe. So I had a colleague who had a child who died premature birth and he saw her later but she had gotten older but she was a spirit so i wondered did she stay the same age or had she continued to grow up in the spirit realm something i was going to share about the hospice piece when my aunt was dying, I had gone to visit her in the inpatient hospice and my two cousins were with their mother one night and they said she kept talking about this little blonde girl at the foot of her bed. And I said, well, that was my mother because she was the younger sister. And when she grew up, she had blonde hair. She always called herself a towhead. So in her case, she had died in her mid seventies, but when her sister was dying, she became the little sister again. And I felt like she was there maybe to play with her again, like Jesus playing with grandpa. Yeah, I just wondered if you have thoughts about the ages at which we appear in the spirit world. Sometimes I think, though, that spirits can appear to us in a more pleasing way so that we're not frightened. Like mm -hmm. the woman in the the long dress I always remember her having a very pleasant look on her face and she was always very kind but thinking about how people in that kind of dress died mm -hmm. it probably wasn't a gentle death so she didn't appear like she would have in her death mm -hmm. she appeared in a way that was comforting to me we do the same as adults, you know, we may be just in a horrible mood. And as nurses, you walk into a patient's room with a smile on your face and, and they don't see the real you because you're only sharing a portion. And I'm sure that that's true of those spirits is they're sharing what they want you to see just as we do. So can you think of any other kinds of experiences that you've had? I know that there are more. The Ouija board, I think my father just had a fit over. You know, they became popular in the early 60s. My dad was adamant that we should not have one in the house. And of course, we had one in the house. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was when the story about his aunt came up. So go back to that story and try to focus on anything else you remember the way that your dad would tell that story. The way daddy told it was that she was kind of a fake 
and she would put on fake seances to make money. That was the way she made a living. And one night she was in the middle of this fake seance and it turned into a real seance. And then things started happening. But he also related that his aunt knew things about people and that's how she had gained that reputation to begin with. So I am sure she was also that empath that could kind of read people's just by watching and gathering that information about them. My dad used to tell us stories all the time. So many of them were so far-fetched. One of them was that he played poker with Bat Masterson in the town that he grew up in. Now, since he was born in 1913, we're still kind of the Wild West down in lower Kansas. I knew Bat Masterson. He was a television character. He wasn't real. Well, lo and behold, when my children were small, we took them to Fort Scott, Kansas for a tour of the fort. And the man giving the tour talked about how the Bat Masterson would come to visit his brother in Fort Scott. And he would stay at the local saloon and play cards with the patrons. Dad hadn't made up those stories. He really knew the real Bat Masterson. He met Pretty Boy Floyd. You know, there are these wonderful, colorful stories that we didn't believe were true. So now, having known that, yeah, they, they were actually true, the story about the seance became more relevant and certainly a possibility. Oh, here's another story for you. So I worked at the old St. Mary's Hospital. And then you remember St. Mary's was bought out by Trinity. And then Trinity shut down St. Mary's. And as they were emptying St. Mary's building, they took out all of the religious artifacts. It was a Catholic hospital. And they took off the crosses and all the statues and all of that. I don't remember why a group of us had access to the building, but we did. And I walked in, I just started really getting more into photography. And I took in a camera with black and white film and started shooting all over the place. I have halos around where the crosses should have been and around where the statuary sat in the little indentions, you know, and there are little halos around them. It was the strangest thing when I got the pictures back from the developer. It was like, what in the heck is this? And you couldn't see those with the human eye. No. And it was the same with the orb. I did not see that floating out there. Tell the story of the orb. So I originally learned about your experiences. You sent me out of the blue, this photograph of an orb. And you said, tell me if you see it. And then we started talking. That same day, a colleague of mine who I used to work with had introduced me to somebody and I was going to be interviewing her, but it took three or four months before we could schedule it. The same day, Chris, the same day, she sent me a picture of an orb. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, what are the odds of that? How bizarre. So tell me the story about the photo. We were in Scotland at this hundred year old bridge. It's a foot bridge across this little creek. It had been raining through the day and it was very cloudy, but the rain had stopped. And my twin and I both went down to take pictures. I took pictures with my camera and I took pictures with my phone and the orb showed up on my phone, but it didn't show up in the pictures on the camera. My twin took pictures just with her phone and they showed up on her phone as well. 
but we didn't see anything at all out there. We were just taking shots. And initially I thought it was a flare from a sunlight beam kind of coming from somewhere. That's not the way when you look at the photograph, there isn't a sunbeam that would have created that flare. I was so excited. It was like, this is the first time I've actually gotten a picture of an orb. Friends of mine had also been to Scotland and they had gone on a haunted castle tour. One of them, she's so funny and she is so outspoken. And she kept saying, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in ghosts. They took a picture of her and there are orbs surrounding her. There's oh. like five or six of them dancing around her head and beside her. So what is your sense of what that is? When you talk about an orb, how would you explain it? It's that energy that doesn't leave. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is that manifestation of that energy mm -hmm. that belongs in each one of us. And here it is manifested in this ball. It is so cool to me. So I had this experience. Have you ever been to Banff in Canada? Mm -mm. There's a lodge there that my aunt and uncle, they were my godparents. They had stayed at years ago and they had a photograph. And I remember seeing it and thinking, I want to go there someday. It was sort of the beginning of my bucket list. And I ended up having a conference that was there. And it was like one of my interprofessional conferences and I thought, I've got to go to Banff. I got, I've got to go to this one. And it was at the lodge. And so I was able to stay in the lodge. And one evening, I just wanted to wander around and look at things. But I just felt drawn to this one area. There was just an uneasiness, but I was drawn to it. And then I saw this staircase. And I went down the staircase. And at the bottom of the staircase was a photograph and a story, it said that there was a wedding that was held and the bride had put all of these candles down the stairs. And as she walked down the stairs, she somehow tripped and ended up falling down the stairs and something with the candles, she ended up dying. And I went down to the bottom and I just stood there and I talked to her and I just said, you know, I'm so sorry what happened to you, you know, and I was, I was just having a conversation with her as if it was someone I was just trying to comfort. And I, I went down to the base of the stairs and I took a photograph. And when I take photos, I always hold my breath so I don't move. Mm -hmm. so I'm always careful. I'm kind of go. And then I hold my breath and I took a photo. And when I, and it was on my phone, when I looked at it, it was all fuzzy. And I thought, that's weird. And so I thought there must be something with the light. So I didn't move, held my breath, took another photo. I mean, it was perfect. And I felt as if I had captured something. You Very know? possibly right in front of you. And then I felt as if whatever uneasiness I felt after I had this conversation, I felt comfortable again. And then I felt more comfortable walking in that area. And before I left the hotel, I had to go and say goodbye to her. <laughs> I just felt I needed, I felt like we had a relationship and I needed to say something before I left and to thank her for letting me know about her experience. But yeah, I think it is interesting because again, I couldn't see anything in front of me, but the photograph was the thing. And then the second photo, it was gone. So I'm not sure how to explain that. And I don't share that with everyone. <laughs> Apparently, I just did, though. <laughs> it's amazing, though, if you didn't have that sensitivity, that you would have completely discounted it, that there was a light flare, just like my initial thought, mm -hmm. except that it also appeared from a different angle mm -hmm. in my twins photograph. So yeah, sometimes it's believing in the magical and truly believing that there are other 
things on heaven and earth than we understand. For people who are able to see and don't know what to make of it, or maybe are even afraid of it, do you have any advice for how they can make some peace with that gift? Honestly, I don't talk about this a lot because there's so much psychiatric stigma associated with this. You hear voices kind of thing. If patients tell me that they see an angel, I will certainly tell them it's very possible. And you may. I believe that truly angels are there to guide us. So for my patients, for other people that say things like that, if they believe in that, I support them with that. There are people that are having horrible hallucinations. And I try to be understanding and try to figure out what they're seeing and what's frightening to them about that, because those are real for them as well. I did an internship at a state hospital and so had that experience of someone seeing things. She just about hit me once because she thought she saw something and and I moved just in the nick of time. And I guess that's the thing with this conversation that I'm having with people is I also did psychiatric social work. So I know that there are times when it's a symptom as opposed to a gift. How would you help distinguish that so that somebody who maybe actually has a gift but maybe is afraid of it, learns how to manage it, set some boundaries around it, and to distinguish that from someone who maybe is having a hallucination. Without fail, if I was in a situation where I didn't feel safe with what I was seeing or feeling, if I said, go away, it went away. And you say it with force and you set that boundary, go away. I don't want you here. And they were gone. And that's how I could control that. Even in my dreams, I know that setting that boundary, you are not allowed here. This is my space. Helps me to protect me from what things I don't feel are safe. But even for patients that I know are having horrible hallucinations, I had a patient that There was a demon under his bed. And if he stepped out of the bed, the demon was going to kill him. I took a broom and drove the demon away. There are times even when for those patients, it's real to them. Whatever it is that they're seeing is a true real thing. And you have to help at least in that very moment. I've done that. And it did help. I was able to get the patient out of the bed and get him to another room where we could keep him safer. And he wasn't scaring the tar out of his roommate. That made quite a difference. And I think, again, for people who are having experiences, if other people are experiencing it too, then most likely... But then I guess that could be mass hysteria in some cases. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I have struggled over the years between thinking it's all my imagination Mm -hmm. and it's all okay. There's a fine balance. I think those people with gifts walk, but you're never going to feel the magic. You're never going to see the magic if you don't believe in it. Mm -hmm. If there's not some spark in you that knows magic exists, then you can't see it. Thank you for listening to Spirited Conversations. Please like and follow Spirited Conversations on Facebook at Terry Kennedy 1111. T-E-R-I-K-E-N-N-E-D-Y 1111. If you have a personal story to share, please message me with a brief description of your experience your first name and email address. Sleep tight. Ooh.